Welcome back to the program. For years, we've had one image of the drug wars. Images conjured up from movies like The Godfather or Scarface or reading about the L.A. battles between the Bloods and the Crips. But drugs, like anything else, are subject to the pressures and demands of the free market. And creative destruction in the drug business has meant that drug dealers are now a kinder and gentler breed. They've come to understand and appreciate the values of customer service, particularly as many drug users with addictions to painkillers and heroin are respectable middle-class citizens. According to the CDC, every day 44 people in the United States die from an overdose of prescription painkillers with many more addicts being created every day. Together, the unlikely combination of doctors all too eager and willing to prescribe and the boys of Jalisco, Mexico, have created a perfect storm of suburban addiction. We're going to talk about this with my guest, Sam Quinones. He's a journalist and author with two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration. He spent many years at the L.A. Times, and his newest book is Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic, Sam Quinones, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. It's great to have you here for a long time now. We've been hearing more and more about suburban addiction, partly painkillers, and also the, the emergence of heroin as a big deal in white, middle-class suburban communities. There really hasn't been a clear focus on what underlies this or how it's coming about. This is essentially the area that you look at. Give us a little bit of an overview first. Well, basically, a lot of this begins in the, in the, um, with, with a revolution, really, in U.S. medicine. Uh, we went from a country where we prescribe very, very few um, opiate or opiate-based painkillers in the 1960s and 1970s, even to people who were really in, in horrifying and indecent pain. Doctors were really loath to prescribe them because they might get addicted. Now, uh, the idea was, well, some, you know, we're trying to avoid addiction at all costs. Well, that was, that was a, perhaps a good idea, except for that it was applied to people who were in, in terminal pain, they were dying of cancer. There grew up a movement to change that, beginning really in the, in the mid-1980s and continuing on into the 1990s. It said, we have these drugs, we should use them to uh, uh, address uh, terminal cancer pain, which was after a while viewed as, as a, probably a, a, a reasonable idea. The problem is that then that, that same movement kept on going and said, well, we now need, we now need to prescribe these pills uh, and these drugs for um, all manner of, of pain, uh, things that they never were prescribed for before, extraction of wisdom teeth, uh, post-surgical stuff uh, a lot of times, um, uh, a lot of chronic pain. Uh, some chronic pain really did need that, that, those kinds of drugs. Other chronic pain probably could have been uh, addressed with, with, with other, uh, other ways, you know, uh, uh, more exercise, better diet, and, and, and the pain uh, tends to disappear sometimes. So what we, what, we, what we began to see is that these pain specialists were kind of leading a crusade for pain uh, uh, reduction and pain treatment across, across America uh, convinced doctors, general practitioners, and, uh, and other doctors that these drugs were, were virtually non-addictive. That was the phrase, virtually non-addictive when used for p treating pain. Um, so these drugs became, became uh, uh, widely prescribed. We saw what I call a rising sea level of pain pills used across the United States beginning really in the 1990s and continuing on on today that touches virtually every corner of our, of our country. 
Along with that, though, comes a, a, a real rise in addiction. Now, a lot of this is done because of because the the supply is so great that the pills are in every medicine cabinet, and kids get into it, and that's uh, it's recreational use. Uh, people people abuse it that way. But a good number of people that I've run into um, uh, uh, around the country and heard of also grew addicted because they were prescribed this for some injury, for some accident, for some part of uh, chronic pain and they grew addicted. These pills contain drugs that are, you know, opiate-based, um, opioids they're called, uh, that are very molecularly very similar to heroin. When you get addicted to these pills, your tolerance rises. They cost a, a lot of money when you are forced to buy them on the street. If your doctor cuts you off, uh, pretty soon you are without your, your drugs. What, the, the, the thing that you switch to then is, is, is heroin. Heroin has become dirt cheap, really, um, because it's now coming from Mexico and, and, and Colombia, mainly Mexico in our area, uh, and not Asia, not Turkey anymore, as was the case in the 70s. And so the price for heroin has dropped significantly, and that is the situation that we find ourselves in, in today all across, uh, all across America. One of the touch points in this move towards addiction you talk about took place in, in 1996 and the Purdue Pharmaceutical Company and the introduction of OxyContin. That was a big deal in moving this whole thing forward. In, indeed. Purdue had a, uh, or OxyContin, I should say, uh, had a crucial role. Uh, first of all, OxyContin, you should know, is different from other pain, um, uh, opiate pain medications and that it, it comes with um, no abuse deterrent or didn't at the time it now does but it did not at the time so it comes with just a, a big dose of 40 or 80 milligrams of oxycodone uh, uh, this drug and other drugs have been marketed before but in smaller doses and always with acetaminophen or tylenol to prevent abuse uh, vicodin and percocet are probably the best known of of, of these drugs uh, so people would, if, if they would abuse Percocet or Vicodin, because of the strong, um, the strong uh, 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 abuse deterrent within them, they, they really didn't move to harder drugs after that. They might, they might abuse these drugs, but, but it was rare when someone transitioned. OxyContin provided the bridge to heroin because it, was, it went from, you, you would start out on, on Vicodin, Percocet, and, and before there was no bridge to heroin, so we just stay there. But now with OxyContin, you would use OxyContin next because it was a bigger whack. It was easier to 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 abuse, and and uh, it, it, after a while, it was more. It was it was fairly prevalent. Uh, so it provided the bridge between the low lower dose uh, opiate uh, painkillers that had um, uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen in it, and 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 heroin. Crucial in all this too was that because it, these drugs were now, now viewed as uh, uh, non-addictive or virtually non-addictive or less than 1% of all patients who ever use them get, get addicted, it was, it was marketed certainly for the first six years of its life, from 1996 to about 2001 or two, as you would market over-the-counter um, pain medication. By that I mean they had a number of come-ons, they, they put out uh, pens and caps and and uh, uh, they even put out a CD, uh, Swing in the Right Direction with OxyContin, and on, on it were a bunch of old swing hits by Woody Herman and Count Basie and all these guys. And Purdue marketed this to doctors 
as the new drug that would help you deal with the pain epidemic that, that we're facing. And it was a very convenient way of dealing with pain because a lot of doctors did not have time to really delve deeply into the real root causes of so many of their patients' pain. And, and you pull out a, a prescription pad, you write a, a prescription for OxyContin, and the problem in the form of the patient kind of goes away. He walks out, out, out the door. So it was this combination of, of promotion at the same time as be providing the bridge, really, to, to heroin that, that made OxyContin kind of the, the, the problem it became in those years. And talk about these pill mills that sprung up as a result of the demand for these drugs. Right. You know, you know what's interesting is you get into a story about, about opiates, you find that a lot of it has to do with business models. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because these drugs create their own customers. Uh, so you can apply uh, 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 modern business principles uh, from a business school to the promotion and, and, and the purveyance of these, um, of these drugs. And that's what I found as I got into this story, that, that everywhere I went, it was about marketing and it was about business models. Well, one business model, that took took uh, took uh, a real hold in, particularly in certain parts of the country, uh, the, especially the co- parts of the country like Appalachia, Southern Ohio, Eastern Kentucky, and and those areas where 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 this was where, that were really ground zero in all of this, was the pill mill. The pill mill was is essentially a doctor's office, a clinic, a doctor's clinic. Uh, in which a doctor uh, is there, and uh, he is a legitimate licensed doctor, but over a period of time, perhaps his scruples are worn down, or maybe he's just an unscrupulous guy to begin with, whatever the case, he starts uh, virtually selling prescriptions. He starts giving prescriptions out to people who pay a $250 fee every month to come to his office and get prescribed large amounts of pills. All of this with virtually no diagnosis. You don't see many, many machines that would, that would, uh, or, 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 or infrastructure in the clinic that, that, that would be used for diagnosing pain. It's, what you do see is long lines, people staying in lines for hours at a time. Uh, and and the, the crucial part of this is that these pills are so classified that under a federal law, you have to go personally to the doctor's office to get your prescription renewed. You cannot call it in. You cannot have it faxed to you. You have to go there. So it, it became a business model for a lot of unscrupulous doctors around the country to set up these clinics and 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 uh, and char- and so you charge 250 or 200 or 250 bucks a patient, and your your clinic would be packed all day long. Uh, this was particularly huge in the town that I write a lot about, uh, a town called Portsmouth, Ohio, on the on the Ohio River across from Kentucky. Really, the the per, the, por, the pill mill uh, uh, capital of America for a long time uh, until they did something about it. But this this led to a huge huge increase in the numbers of, of pills also. So that it fed that rising sea level, particularly in the area where all this first got started and where, where Purdue did a lot of its first uh, advertising back then. And talk then about the transition to heroin, mm-hmm. and particularly as you discuss it, this black tar form of really inexpensive heroin that made its way from Mexico, not just to the West Coast, but literally all across the country. Yeah, that's a crucial point you just bring up, because when my career... Um, 
until I came upon this case. I, I've been a crime reporter. I've lived down in Mexico. My conception was, and has, uh, was for a long time, that black Tahoe from Mexico, in this hemisphere it's only made in Mexico, uh, uh, only was on the western side of the United States, really didn't make it west of the Missis- east of the Mississippi River. It was in Denver, it was in Portland, it was in uh, you know, California, Arizona, places like that, but it really was not any place else in large sustained uh, amounts. What, what ends up happening is there's a, there's a town, a small town in, in Mexico where all the men from this town have developed over a period of 25 years, uh, trial and error, a very uh, powerful and resilient marketing system for selling black tar heroin retail as if it were pizza. Heavy on, uh, as you said earlier, the customer service, heavy on, uh, uh, on delivery because you know your, pati- your, your patients, your, your customers <laughs> don't want to uh, go traveling down to some skid row to get their dope, this kind of thing. They had developed this system, kind of worked out the kinks in it in the, early, in the 80s and into the early 90s. And they had also, because they're all from the same town and word spreads very quickly in the same small town, they had really saturated certain markets. They'd saturated Portland and Reno and Salt Lake and Vegas and places like that in L.A., of course, and Pomona and San Diego. Um, and um, and they, they had a part of their system is that they don't do violence. They don't shoot each other. They're not the Bloods and the Crips, you know, shooting it out for, for crack territory. These are guys who know each other. They're all from the same town. Uh, there's a kind of a live and let live ethos. They're all, and so the way they actually make more profit is to find new territory, virgin territory. And that's what happens. One guy sets out, crosses the Mississippi River, goes to Columbus, Ohio, in 1998, in fact, June 11th, 1998 is when I have uh, exactly pegged that this guy moved across the Mississippi River, and that marks the first time that black tar heroin from Mexico really had a sustained large quantity supply uh, east of the Mississippi River. He sets up in Columbus, and in Columbus, it's, this is right the time when, when the pills are exploding in Portsmouth, Ohio, when uh, Purdue is marketing oxycontin like it was virtually non-addictive and it was providing this 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 bridge that will later become the bridge to heroin and he arrives with this dirt cheap heroin right at that very moment purely coincidentally no conspiracy theory here or anything like that it just so happened that that's how it worked out and that those that collision provided the first example in the country of what we now see all across the country which is this collision of of pills first, uh, addiction resulting from that, and then, of course, the transition to heroin. You're seeing this all, all over the place. It's not always guys from the small town anymore because, of course, the underworld is now fully aware of the, of the pill issue, and now thousands and thousands of people have gotten involved in selling heroin. But the first place that I charted where this thing that we're seeing across the country happened happened in Columbus, and then from there, the, the guys, the Jalisco boys from this town, Jalisco and the state of Nayarit, move out to 
Charlotte, they moved to Nashville, they moved to Memphis, they moved to uh, Indianapolis, uh, various other places, uh, well, Wheeling, West Virginia, places like that, and, and, and they get going. And, and, but Columbus is really like the center of this story. It's interesting that the places that they picked, both east and west of the Mississippi, these small towns, the places that yeah. you were just rattling off, are, are partly the parts of the country that have been hollowed out, places where there is real pain, both physical, emotional, and mental, and, and that seem ideally suited to, to take in this stuff. And, and, you know, that's a really, really great question. The, the, initially, that was the case. Uh, initially, they came to areas where, uh, you know, what they really were looking for were, were areas with no competition. That's what they're really looking for. If you ask these guys, and I have, what, what it, why did you move here? Why did you move there? Because there's nobody, you know, there's no gangs controlling it. There's no mafias. They never went, for example, to New York City, to Philadelphia, Baltimore, D.C., because those are massive heroin markets, but they're already controlled by very serious armed gangs. These guys, these guys are all from a small rural town. They're all farm boys. They're butchers. They're bakers. They're not going to be taking on these guys. So the first place they do come is Appalachia. But after that, you also you see a switch from from, from like low income white communities to high income white like Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte's an enormously wealthy uh, place. Uh, Portland is another. Uh, Indianapolis is doing very very well. Um, all these places have a few things in common. They have they are not controlled by any drug mafias or gangs or anything like that. They're easy for a kid who's right out of the rural Mexico, doesn't know anything about the United States, to navigate. I began, as, I, as I began to drive around a lot of these towns, they all felt the same. They all have like a beltway, and it's not very difficult to figure it out after you've been there a week or two. Um, they all have large, very wealthy white populations, and they all have significant Mexican populations. And that, that's, that last is very important because the Mexican population allows these guys to blend in. Any, any mafia works off of the backs of, of its own ethnic group. The Italians did the same thing. And, and that's what's happening here. And so they, they, they set up in these towns that, are, that have done really fairly well in the last uh, 20 years since the mid-1990s, the economic boom, say, of, of, those, of those years and on into the last decade. Uh, you know, you're talking Indianapolis, Salt Lake, uh, Portland, Vegas, uh, 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 Phoenix, Albuquerque, as well as you know, Cincinnati, Charlotte, places like that. These all these are all the same kind of towns, um, and they all, they all have in common these 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 factors that that allow for this system that these guys are using uh, to really work well. And in many cases, too, a lot of these areas did not have police forces uh, very attuned to the Mexican community. A lot of, maybe didn't have a lot of Spanish-speaking officers, and so it took them a long time to see what they what was taking place that these guys had a very, very strong propensity, a strong desire to always look low-profile, humble. They don't flash a lot of money. They don't drive fancy cars. They never use guns. And so all of this kind of allowed these towns to be their, their, their footholds. What they also did is that they practiced really good customer service. Yeah, right. Oh, that's, the, that's uh, among the many weird aspects to this story was how I would come upon junkies and say, well, yeah, after they delivered, you know, they, they, they would call me and say, hey, man, was the guy on time? Uh, did, was the dope, dope good? Um, one, one junkie told me um, that uh, uh, his dealer um, 
would uh, offer him, if you buy a uh, hit from me every day, Monday through Sunday, Saturday, I'll give you a free one on Sunday. Uh, there was a lot of concern about that. There was also a huge amount of concern that anybody stopped using. They didn't want people to die. They didn't want people to stop using. And so whenever you said or showed any signs of like, I'm going to back off here or I'm going to do something, I'm not, I want to get into rehab, they would, uh, uh, I've heard stories of these guys saying, oh, that's a terrific idea, and then they show up at your door with free dope and you, you keep using because they know that there's a moment there when addicts want to quit and they can act on it, and if that moment passes, then that, then that addict's going to stay hooked for a long time after that, most likely. And the, I heard stories of this all the time, people getting out of jail and getting like a, a care package of free dope to get them using again after they'd been maybe incarcerated for six months or so. I mean, uh, these guys uh, uh, were, were remarkable, diabolical in a lot of ways, in the, in the ways that they, they figured out customer service was the way toward a better drug business and not gunplay and not they're not scarface you know they're like the guys who who were standing out in front of your home depot that's where they're more like the other two players in this that that one wonders where they were as all this was unfolding for all these years is is one big pharma had to see what was going on with these pill mills and these pain medications and them being a gateway drug to heroin how did they react and the other part of the equation is the DEA and the government and and how they responded to what they were seeing well you know that that last question is a very interesting one as i got into this story uh, it, two things occurred to me. One, that this was a story about the free market run amok. That there was, um, uh, you know, it, it, it could have been in, in pill mills. It could have been in advertising uh, of, of what are uh, uh, approved legitimate drugs, but in, uh, marketing in a, in a, in a, in a, in a aggressive, aggressive fashion, uh, drugs that are basically opioid-based. Um, or it could be the underworld, the, the Jalisco boys from Jalisco Nayarit who, who have this marketing system. But it's all about the free market. It's not about gunplay. It's, it's all about marketing, business tactics, customer service, and, and the idea that you can do whatever you, whatever you want. Uh, there's no regulation. What I did find was that as I went along, the only people who were combating this scourge, particularly early on, but even today it's really true, were government employees. It's a really an interesting thought that it, it, it occurred to me as time went on. They are, of course, the DEA has done a lot on this. The FBI has also done a fair amount. But you're also talking about local and federal prosecutors, local, local cops, regional drug task forces. Also, though, you've got a whole other uh, group of people who, uh, um, who have fought this um, uh, really, really very, very hard, coroners, local public health nurses and, and public health officials in, in whatever county happens to be, uh, 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 county drug counselors, uh, a variety of folks like that. And one of the reasons they have had to do this is because this is an enormously quiet scourge. It is not, you do not have public violence, nor, very crucially, do you have lots of parents marching in the streets creating, um, uh, demanding that the media cover this in, in a sustained way, calling attention to the stories of their children. A lot of reason for that is because they, people are 
lacerated by this whole experience. When their kid gets addicted, it's not like just a kid. It's a whole family. It, it plunges the whole family, really, into this nightmare of addiction. And, and it is a lacerating experience. And families are then loath to admit this. A lot of them, this is mainly a white epidemic. A lot of, of these, these parents grew up in the 70s, as I did, when, when heroin was viewed as the most dingy, back-alley, disgusting drug you've ever used. And, and, and so they carry that stigma with them. Their daughter, their son, a football player, whatever, ends up addicted to, uh, uh, to these drugs and goes away to rehab. Nobody says anything about where he went or anything like that. People lie about it. And even when, I've heard of cases, even when the, when the kid ends up dead of an overdose, there's lying about why he died or how he died or, or anything like that. There's this enormous uh, stigma that keeps it quiet, which is why it's spread and which is why it has fallen really almost entirely to public employees. Um, to fight this problem, and that's what I found over and over and over again. There are some organized parent groups, there are, and, and, and my hat's off to them. God bless them. Uh, but they are, are really in a minority. Uh, they, there's so many other parents that just simply won't say anything about it because they're so ashamed and they're so uh, stigmatized and, of course, lacerated by the whole, whole experience that, that addiction brings with it. And where does the DEA stand in it? Oh, well, the DEA has rarely a long, long history of, of, of fighting this, I think, actually, truth be told. They have now, uh, uh, um, a few years ago, they started uh, the, the, I'm kind of, I can't remember what they call it, the drug, uh, drug uh, take-back uh, days where they, they will accept any opiate or any pill at all. They were really hoping for lots of these uh, opioid painkillers. And you can drop them off in your take them from your medicine cabinet, drop them off at the local police department. The DEA will take take it into uh, into custody. Very important because so many people get get involved with these drug drugs recreationally by finding them first in their parents' uh, medicine cabinet. Remember, these drugs are massively overprescribed in my view. So you come go in for a surgery, as happened to me get my appendix out a few years back. I probably need, they gave me two or three Vicodin, which were very welcome while I was in the hospital, and they, they sent me home with 60 more. Now, I think I took two. I didn't really know. This is before I started this project. I didn't know what a Vicodin was. I had no idea what, what hydrocodone was, which is the opioid in, in the drug, in, in the pill. Uh, and, and so I took two. I don't really like taking pills when I don't have to, so I just stopped. And the pain, the, really, too, was all I ever needed. And, and I, those, those pills stayed in my medicine cabinet for four years until I realized, damn, I've got these, I've got these um, Vicodin here. Well, that kind of thing has played itself out because people are not prescribed six pills or eight pills after a surgery. Instead, they're pre- pre- prescribed 40 or 60 or 90 pills. You have huge amounts of these pills all over the uh, all over medicine cabinets across the country, and the DEA's uh, take back days have been kind of effective, I think, in 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 just reducing simply that 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 whole that whole su- supply. Remember, this is a drug scourge that starts. We have a lot of debates over how to, what's more important with illicit drug use or or, or abuse drug abuse. And is it more important, supply more important, or demand? Does demand drive it, or does supply drive it? In this case, supply drives it. This is, supply has driven everything. Supply a lot of dope 
in whatever form you want, and you will get a lot of addicts, and that's what's happened. Has any pressure finally been brought to bear on the pharmaceutical industry, which is encouraging doctors and encouraging the medical industry to prescribe such large quantities? Um, I would say a few things uh, on that. First of all, Purdue Pharma was uh, uh, charged federally, charged criminally for misbranding OxyContin in 2007. It pled guilty to a misdemeanor uh, at, that, uh, at that point and, uh, and, and uh, was forced to pay a $634 million fine, $34 million of which were paid by three top uh, executives of the company. It's, it's since gone on to continue to sell OxyContin and it's sold billions of dollars worth of the drug. Um, the uh, other, other pharmaceutical companies have also uh, kind of ratcheted back on their, their very aggressive promotion of pills of all kinds, I think. Uh, there was, a, 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 along with this uh, story, another story of how all the drug companies were really s- aggressively hiring sales force. There was, a, I think, about 120,000 sales reps from drug companies in the United States at one point in like the early, late 90s, early 2000s. That's dropped off uh, considerably. The problem is, however, that, that, that we still have this idea that pills are a solution to every problem we have, and doctors still don't have a whole lot of tools with which to deal with chronic pain or the, the, the pain issues that their, their patients uh, come to them with. The, particularly so if the patients themselves, and this is a huge part of this problem, I think it's really important to, to note, if the patients themselves will not play a role in their own well-being and their own wellness, and frequently that's the case. People come, it's not always the case. Some people do have serious chronic pain that needs addressing, and sometimes these pills are extremely helpful and life-resurrecting for these folks. But a lot of times patients come, they have serious issues with diet, with weight, with lack of exercise, all of which has been shown to have been shown to uh, to reduce chronic pain, they still don't get involved in that 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 in, in do in helping the doctor help them kind of thing. And so, when you have a patient like that demanding but not being accountable for his or own own her, his or her own well being, the doctor really doesn't have much choice except for maybe to prescribe one of the one of these pills. Oftentimes, I feel I feel. Uh, like the doctors have been placed in a horrible situation where, where if they prescribe, they, they risk a uh, person getting addicted. On the other hand, if they don't, uh, either the, the patient may legitimately need the, the pill and, and go, go without it and be in pain, or the, the, the person may be very upset, give the doctor a bad rating on Yelp or one of the other patient surveys areas, saying this doctor didn't prescribe the, the pain pills that he needed to, and and when the doctor knows full well that probably what this patient needs is really just to, to walk a couple miles every day and, 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 and improve his diet, you know. So there's, it's, a, it's a complicated thing. It gets, it's the story got into, I think, um, you know, so a, a big, big issues of where we are as a country, you know, and, and an enormously prosperous country and our own attitudes towards, towards health, happiness, and how to achieve it. Sam Quinones, his book is Dreamland. The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. Sam, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. I appreciate the time.